got Avi uh, Lowe, professor. Uh, what an amazing compliment you have. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, one I think I saw the Hartford email right away. And when I was growing up, anybody who had a Hartford email, everybody was like, wow. And nowadays, you know, that things have changed. It's like, okay. But before, if you had Hartford, it was like back in the old days, if your family had a car phone, everybody wanted to go in that car with the car phone. Remember? Yeah, I do remember that. But uh, I grew up on a farm uh, from a very unprivileged upbringing. And uh, uh, I was always connected to nature. And uh, I, I was frustrated as a kid asking a difficult question at the dinner table and seeing the adults in the room, uh, uh, you know, not knowing the answer and inventing a story or dismissing the question because they were pretty much ignorant and uh, about about the question being asked. And uh, so it was frustrating and I decided to become a scientist so that I can answer the questions that I have uh, and not wait for others to do it. Um, and so I ended up uh, at Harvard, uh, you know, by circumstances, it's not something I planned from the beginning. Uh, it was a long journey and I basically worked hard at it and ended up there. But uh, I don't see titles as an important, um, you know, uh, accomplishment. What I do uh aim at is understanding nature you know that's what i started as a kid and i just want to figure out the environment that we live in and that doesn't just include the, my neighborhood where i have my home but going uh, in the third dimension towards space and figuring out whether we are alone in our cosmic neighborhood you see that's the i think that's the biggest question that humanity can ask are we alone because um, uh, you know, there was a statement made by Nobel laureate, uh, Steve, Steven Weinberg. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in Physics and he wrote a book about uh, the universe, uh, the first three minutes. And in it, he said that the more the universe appears to be comprehensible to us, uh, the more pointless it looks. And I think, uh, you know, the reason it looks uh, pointless to people who study the universe right now is because we haven't found a partner. Uh, when you find a partner, it gives meaning to your life. And as a civilization, the humanity needs to find another civilization out there. And then uh, the universe will be meaningful. It would not be uh, pointless anymore. Yeah, it wouldn't be a maybe, maybe, maybe. Now, when you're growing up in your country, you know, here in the U.S., everybody wants to be an athlete or a doctor or a lawyer. Here you come and, you, you know, what, what, what do people normally want to be there? And then when you come and you're looking at the stars and studying them, I mean, you had to be the oddball in the class at first. Well, when I grew up, I was mostly interested in philosophy because these are, you know, that's the field that raises the, the deepest questions about our existence. You know, the most fundamental is uh, what is the meaning of life? Why are we living? You know, like, is it worth it? Um, uh, what what is around us? What you know? What makes us human? There are many fundamental questions, and uh, you know, nowadays we have some new tools that we can use to address those questions. For example, questions about consciousness or what makes humans humans can now be addressed by creating copies of humans uh, that are artificial, like artificial intelligence systems. And ChatGPT is already uh, creating some turmoil in society, even though it's not sentient. But you know, within a few years, we'll have intelligent 
um, systems that uh, behave just like humans, you know, and respond to us because we made a mirror image of ourselves in in the form of artificial intelligence. And at that point, you know, we can address some uh, fundamental questions, you know, like what what makes us different from the machine. Um, so these questions were previously in the realm of philosophy, and I think science brings them to the forefront and allows us to deal with them differently. Uh, and um, as a kid, I was mostly interested in philosophy, but then uh, circumstances uh, brought me into physics. I had to. I was born in Israel, and it's obligatory to serve in the military, and I prefer to uh, study physics because that's closest uh, to philosophy uh, and and uh, with uh, practical uh, applications. So. I was allowed to pursue that, uh, and and then I was offered a, a, a position in astrophysics. So I started learning about the universe. But it's all circumstances. However, I realized later on that I'm actually, even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm married to my true love. Because if you study the universe, you know you address some of the fundamental questions that were previously in the realm of philosophy. But now we have the scientific tools to to answer them. And for example, how did we arrive here? You know, what preceded us, uh, you know, the religious texts, but we want to have the scientific version of those stories. And how did the universe start? And how did life emerge in the universe? You know, and uh, what is the future of the universe? And, uh, you know, is are we privileged? Are we the only form of life out there? Or, you know, obviously, we're not at the center of the universe, we know that. And moreover, you know, we came relatively late, only a few million years ago, out of the age of the universe, which is 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. So it's uh, 10,000 times longer, universe existed for 10,000 times longer than the human species. And so you ask yourself, okay, well, you know, if we arrived late to this cosmic play, we're not at the center of the stage. You know, it's common sense that the play is not about us. Okay. Despite of what we tend to think all the time that it's about us. And, but that's just because we had a narrow mindset, you know, like my daughters thought that they're at the center of the world when they were at home. But once they went to kindergarten, they realized there are other kids out there. And so the same with us, we tend to think that everything is about us. We are the smartest. There is no other uh, civilization out there. You know, that's natural for a narrow minded point of view, local. Uh, But um, now we know that there are billions of planets like the Earth around, you know, billions of stars like the sun just in the milky way galaxy alone and so the circumstances that we find ourselves in are not unique or special or privileged and it's only common sense to look for them and you know i find that in academia but you know sometimes more broadly and you know common sense is not common yeah it is we had uh robert beto in and uh he works a lot with elon musk and my engineer and i our jaws were dropping with some of the things he he accomplished and said and one thing that always stuck out with me for the last year and a half he said uh space universe it never begins and it never ends and and trying to wrap your head around that is so amazing like it never began and it never end when you hear that what do you think well, the point is that, um, you know, everything changes all the time. 
And uh, we have the illusion that the sun will exist for forever. For example, uh, I once uh, went to an optometrist and she said that, you know, the, the receptionist said that, you know, your number may have changed. You have to test. And I said, fine, everything changes. You know, the sun will die, uh, you know, in, in 7 billion years. And she said, what? Uh, it's against my religion. I, I, I cannot believe that the sun will not exist in 7 billion years. And I said, well, sorry to break the news, but I'm an astrophysicist and the sun is a nuclear reactor. It burns fuel and eventually the fuel will be consumed. And we see a lot of stars like the sun that formed billions of years before the sun and by now are dead. By the way, if there was a civilization next to them, they should have left the planet because they couldn't have stayed there. And, uh, you know, that could have happened billions of years ago. They might have cried for help. Uh, we didn't listen because we were not around. <laughs> but uh, there was a major exodus. I'm sure it, it was featured in the main uh, newspapers or, you know, news media <laughs> on those planets. You know, our, our star, you know, is about to, about to end its life. We have to move somewhere else. And that became a major political item for those planets out there. Now we are used to a very short lifespan, you know, that where the sun is still uh, shining every morning when we wake up, but uh, there will be a morning if you were around where the sun will not exist. Okay. And uh, the point is we need to realize that everything changes. It, some things change on a very long time, but um, you know, a star much more massive than the sun lives only for a million years few million years which is nothing so, uh, so the time depends on the mass of the star depends on con but nothing stays forever okay and and the the key for survival is to adapt to changing circumstances so you can think of interstellar um survival and then you can apply uh, charles darwin's uh, approach to that the fittest survive what does it mean it means that as long as your civilization is able to adapt to everything that changes around it, like uh, the planet changes, you know, the climate changes on the planet. Like, for example, Mars, you know, uh, a few billion years ago was probably not very different from Earth. Okay. Uh, the surface gravity is about 38% of Earth, but there was liquid water on the surface. There was an atmosphere, but then it lost its atmosphere. And then it, became this frozen desert that we see now. So imagine living on Mars, you know, if there could have been a civilization like ours on Mars, uh, you know, the only thing that should have happened in order for it to exist is that the time for it to emerge should have been cut by a factor of two. So if it was twice as fast for a civilization to emerge on Mars than on Earth, then it was there when Mars was habitable. And just think about it, you know, they would have had to, to do something to leave the planet or they may have died, perished by, and, and we don't see any traces by now. So, um, so that's the point that you always need to adapt. And I completely agree with Elon Musk, who says that humanity needs to become a multi-planet uh, civilization. Uh, he's thinking, he, he's dreaming about dying on Mars. My dream is different, personally. I want to go to space uh, and then uh, get kicked by some planet to interstellar space. Now, I will die by, by the time I reach interstellar space, the space between stars. But I just want my body to float out there 
And then uh, there is a chance that in some billions of years from now, I will collide with another planet and become a meteor in their sky. You know, a meteor is an object that burns up in the atmosphere of a planet. So just imagine another scientist on that planet noticing an interstellar meteor and saying, let's check what this meteor is all about and might find some fragments uh, from my body and put it in a museum. Uh, And if I will be remembered by another civilization, you know, that will be my biggest honor uh, rather than being remembered only here on Earth. This episode is brought to you by Manscaped.com. Breaking news, Manscaped now sells beard products. That's right. They are once again revolutionizing men's grooming with brand new Beard Hedger Pro Kit. From a beard trim to a fresh shave, the technology behind Beard Hedger Pro Kit allows you to shave your signature beard look. Now you can finally use Manscaped products to make your drapes match your carpet by going to manscaped.com and using code MSCS Media for 20% off and free shipping. No one likes a weird beard, so say goodbye to all the stubble trouble with Manscaped's Pro Beard Kit. It all starts with the Beard Hedger. This thing is a monster of fixing faces. First off, this cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths all with one guard. No more messing around in drawers, this color one, that color one, all with one guard. Plus it's waterproof, so you can shave in the shower and avoid all that hair in the sink. The Pro Kit doesn't end there though. First, there's the beard shampoo and conditioner. You need to remember your hair is different. Next, Manscaped's beard oil. Cap it off with beard balm. The Pro Kit also comes with three different gifts, a beard brush, comb and scissors to ensure your beard is ready to impress so get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code mscs media at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off and free shipping at manscaped.com use the code mscs media manscaped beard hedger one stroke one guard 20 lengths link is in the description below Yeah, and, and you know one thing when I when I read your your work, uh, Brian Cox, I really like the way he speaks about things, and many others. The one thing I've noticed is you have a group of guys that are, are so intelligent and really digging into this, and then you have another group, and you know they know that the facts are there, but for whatever reason, maybe the community they don't want to go against the grain, and when they don't, and in my opinion, I'm the one to tell you, but if you go against the grain then you don't have all everyone on the same page trying to figure things out. And it would be much quicker if they would stop, you know, whatever was written 20 years ago, uh, they don't want to go against it. But if they did, the advancements that we could make so much faster. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, so there are two elements to that. One, that uh, very often you see polarization, just like in politics. You see people making nonsensical statements on one end and then the opposite side also goes to the extreme which doesn't make any sense okay and it's actually the middle ground in between that makes more sense but nobody goes there because people uh, enjoy the being part of a bubble a part of a herd you know like uh, having um, going to the extreme and that's really unfortunate now in science uh you can remedy that okay in different from politics in politics you can believe or in religion you can believe in whatever you want but in science you're supposed to be guided by evidence okay so by collecting evidence it's possible to change opinions because at some point suppose i get a high resolution image of a technological object that was not manufactured by humans doesn't have made in china on it 
uh, it's, it says made on exoplanet Y on it. And it maneuvered in ways that we cannot reproduce. And it has some technologies that we don't fully understand. You know, if I get a hold of such a thing or a, an image of such a thing or a video of such a thing, which I'm aiming to get with the Galileo project that I'm leading, oh. then I think it will, uh, and it will be beyond any reasonable doubt, then I think uh, my colleagues will have no choice but to uh, basically say, yeah. oh, of course, that makes a lot of sense. And we thought about it all along. It's just that we were not sure. Okay, so they will completely shift. And you see those paradigm shifts in science based on evidence. But it's really difficult to get there because what happens before is that you have skeptics that say, oh, this is an extraordinary claim to claim that there is another civilization out there. Therefore, I need extraordinary evidence to support it. That's what Carl Sagan said in the 70s. And I say, you know, to get extraordinary evidence, you need extraordinary funding. So if you say, I don't have evidence, I don't want to talk about it, you will never search. And it's a circular argument, you will never get that evidence. However, if you look at science, there are lots of speculations where people say, oh, the most of the matter in the universe, which we don't know what its nature is, which is called dark matter. You know, some people say, oh, maybe it's a weakly interacting massive particle or a, the lightest supersymmetric particle, some type of particle, hypothetical. And then $10 billion are being spent on the Large Hadron Collider, smashing protons against each other, trying to produce such a particle. And then we don't find it. So you ask yourself, was that a waste? No, that's the way science is done. You search for things that make sense. And if you don't find them, you learn that they don't exist. Okay, so that's what they, that's the learning process. And sometimes we just have the wrong guesses. Okay, so you can't just say there is no extraordinary evidence for the lightest supersymmetric particle. Therefore, I should not invest any money in searching for it. That's... And in fact, the mainstream of the physics communities said, we want to spend $10 billion. Okay, so it was spent. Nothing was found. I'm saying nothing, no money, no federal money is being spent on the search for technological equipment from extraterrestrial civilizations. And uh, how would you expect to find anything in that approach? So the only reason I got engaged in that is because the first objects from outside the solar system were discovered over the past decade. Before that, we could not find them. So when Enrico Fermi back in 1950, you know, 70 years ago, said, where is everybody? He was talking about extraterrestrials. You know, it was a very lazy proposition because it's just like sitting at home on the sofa and saying, where are my neighbors? Nobody is around me. Um, I don't have any neighbors. Well, that's not the right approach. You should look through your windows and you better use a telescope. And only over the past decade, we had the instruments that allow us to survey the sky and look for objects from outside the solar system. We discovered four. You know, the first one reported was Oumuamua in 2017. And my book, Extraterrestrial, talks about it. Right, then with my student, Amir Siraj, we discovered two meteors much smaller. Oumuamua was roughly the size of a football field and was anomalous uh, in its shape, was anomalous by, by, uh, as, you know, being pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without having a cometary tape. And then the, we discovered two meteors that burned up in the atmosphere of the Earth that were half a meter in size, uh, and they were tougher than iron. 
tougher than all the space rocks we had seen before. So the first three interstellar objects, you know, the two meteors, one from 2014 and the second one from March 2017, okay. about seven months before Oumuamua was discovered in October 2017, uh, all three looked unusual, uh, weird, unlike the rocks we had seen before from the solar system. And then there was a fourth one that looked like a comet, just like the solar system comet. So I say, you know, if three out of four appear to be unusual, maybe there is something out there in space that uh, has to do with equipment from other civilizations. And we maybe these are not rocks. We, maybe these are spacecraft. And we need to find out to get more evidence. So that's what brought me into this subject. And I'm, I'm using the scientific method. And the only thing that limits the the study that the Galileo project is conducting is the funding. So at the moment we have only a few million dollars and we built already an observatory uh, that is taking data of the sky at one location. We're making a copy of it in the coming months. We need funding at tens of millions of dollars to have enough make, making like tens of copies or hundreds of copies of this first observatory so that we can get a large number of unidentified objects so that we can identify them. And by the way, the U.S. government cares about it, not just the public. Um, and then we also have an expedition uh, to Papua New Guinea in two months uh, to retrieve the fragments from the first interstellar meteor. We want to see what the composition was. Was it a rock or perhaps some artificial alloy like stainless steel that will tell us Maybe it was a spacecraft. So altogether, you know, it's looking for evidence uh, in the scientific way. And the only thing that limits us is funding at the moment. And I think something you said very important. They do a test for $10 billion and act like, okay, we didn't find it. Let's go. But just like a doctor, if you're trying to cure a major disease, you exit off and then it's done, right? So if you spend $10 billion, you have to spend the $10 billion to figure out what it is. If it's not what you thought or it's useless, okay, it's gone and we move on to the next one. So, you know, hopefully we can get some funding for you because you've got some excellent things going on. Now, the, this episode is sponsored by Z-Biotics. What is Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic? The Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is a genetically engineered probiotic you drink before drinking alcohol to avoid that rough next morning and get back to living your life. PhD scientists invented it because they know the real problem is not dehydration. It's a toxic byproduct of alcohol. And Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the only product that breaks it down. Just remember to drink responsibly and plenty of rest too. Every time I have Z-Biotics before drinking, I'm amazed at how good I feel the next day. Z-Biotics is a must-have for me because it means I'm still going to make my daily workout even if I have a few drinks the night before. That's important to me. You can get Z-Biotics for 15% off your first order using my code MSCSMedia at checkout. I recommend getting the six-pack. That's what I got. It's a great deal. You have a couple extra to share with friends. Go to zbiotics.com backslash mscsmedia. That's Z as in zebra, biotics, B-I-O-T-I-C-S dot com backslash mscsmedia or scan the QR code on the screen right now and get 15% off your first order. You will not be sorry. Link is in the description below. 
This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked. Are you the man your father was? Recent studies have shown that men's testosterone levels have dropped substantially since the 1980s at about an average of 1% per year. Think about how old your father was when he was born. For example, if he was 30, your testosterone levels could be 30% lower than his. Low testosterone levels can have all type of health effects on men. It can affect your mood, sex drive, memory, muscle mass loss, you name it. And yes, low testosterone is more common the older you get, but it can affect men at any age. So let's talk about today's sponsor, Let's Get Checked. You can order a testing kit that will be delivered to you in a discreet packaging with next day delivery. Once your sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. So... If you want to test your hormone levels without having to leave your home, visit trylgc.com backslash mscsmedia and get 25% off your test using the code mscsmedia. The link is in the description at the top. I also wanted to make a comment about the mainstream of physics because, you know, in theoretical physics, for almost half a century, there was a prevailing, a dominant uh, paradigm, which was uh, uh, unifying quantum mechanics and gravity, the two pillars of physics, through string theory, which invokes uh, extra dimensions and all kinds of... And we've been at it for 50 years, no prediction. The theory appears to have a lot of variants, and we don't know which one is true, and no prediction was made, no experimental test, and yet it's mainstream. Okay, and I say, okay, if you thought that the mainstream should be conservative, how come this thing exists for 50 years? And it uses the brightest minds, you know, uh, that they do mathematical gymnastics without having any, without improving our understanding of reality. Uh, and it, moreover, f when the Large Hadron Collider didn't find supersymmetry in recent years, when I speak to people there, they say, Oh, it's just around the corner. We need to build a bigger and better accelerator that just we around smash the corner. because it's <laughs> higher energies. And to me, you know, it reminds me of um, the Orthodox uh, community, Jewish community in Brooklyn uh, called the Lubavitchers because they believe that their rabbi is the Messiah. That was a couple of decades ago. And they always said, our rabbi, when he dies, he will become the Messiah. So they built an apartment, which is a replica of his apartment in Brooklyn, so that when he comes as the Messiah, he's supposed to go to Israel. And uh, this way, he would find the toilets because he knows his <laughs> way around the apartment. So they put the, the same replica. And uh, then he died. Okay, so him dying is you know, an empirical fact, you cannot deny it, he's not around anymore. Just like not finding supersymmetry is an empirical fact, you know, in the Large Hadron Collider. So what did they do? He didn't come back. We all know that the Messiah didn't arrive, right? Um, so they came up with an explanation. They said, we just need to wait a little longer. I'll wait a little longer and build and some more I, stuff. I say, Okay, so you look at that <laughs> and you look at the mainstream of theoretical physics and you ask yourself, what's the difference? What's the difference? We have, so, you, when it's so, done, it's done. We move on and we, we go to the next thing. Yeah, but the other thing is, um, you know, pushing back against evidence on unusual objects just because you don't want to consider the possibility of extraterrestrial civilizations you know, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't square with the 
approach of saying, oh, supersymmetry may exist around the corner. Let's invest a few more billions of dollars in another collider. Because if you are willing to do that, you should be willing to invest $100 million in the search for equipment from other civilizations. Because we sent equipment to space, you know, NASA did that. We sent uh, five interstellar probes that will exit the solar system. So, and we know that most stars from billions of years before the sun and our spacecraft would cross the entire Milky Way galaxy in half a billion years. So that's much less than the time difference between how much earlier other civilizations could have existed before us. So by now their probes could have reached us and it's just a matter of common sense to look for them. I mean, I don't see why that should be regarded as speculative. Why should that be extraordinary? It's not extraordinary. Actually claiming that we are alone is extraordinary. That's arrogant. That, that's and insane to me. I just don't understand how people egotistic. prefer to be arrogant and ignorant. Isn't that egotistic to think that we're the only people here? Right. I think so. I think uh, every all the information we get teaches us modesty. You know, I call it cosmic modesty. We should be humble, modest. We should not assume that our circumstances are unique or special. We should not assume that we are the smartest. And once you understand that, if you are searching for others that may have evolved more than us, in te technologically speaking, you know, that's an opportunity for us to learn something about our future, to improve ourselves. You know, instead of um, having, you know, having those, uh, we, we are spending $2 trillion on military budgets every year worldwide. Uh, and I calculated if you use the same amount of money, $2 trillion a year, and just build CubeSats, you can basically send a CubeSat to every star in the Milky Way galaxy in several decades. Just by using, instead of wasting money on fighting each other, killing each other, uh, I mean, just think about the, the news, uh, you know, the, yeah. the headlines nowadays are mostly about the Ukraine, the Ukrainian border. But if you look at the Orion spacecraft that went behind the moon, took images of the Earth, you would be hard pressed to find the Ukraine-Russia border on in those images that he took of the Earth. It looks like a blue marble, you know, from space. What we are concerned with, with uh, makes no sense. We are just fighting each other on this two-dimensional surface of the blue marble. We are wasting a lot of resources on that instead of thinking about the third dimension, which is outer space. And that's two trillion in the last three months. And then we're going to probably spend another two trillion in another three months. And and well, all every, every year, every year we, we every spend year. two trillion. It's really, if you think about it, it's, it's just uh, either to uh, defend ourselves against others or to kill others and it makes no sense because nobody wins from that. And if we were to partner uh, worldwide and and work together and explore space, we Imagine. could do so much better. Imagine. So uh, I, I wrote actually an essay in Medium uh, last month, and the title was Science is Better Than Politics. I think everyone on the planet would yeah. agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you why I wrote it, because I watched uh, this film uh, all quiet on the Western Front, and that's about the First World War. And you basically okay. see young people marching uh, forward and being slaughtered by machine guns, by you know knives. And you ask yourself, you know, 
what was the point? Like, um, my grandfather fought in that war. He was on the German side against the French. And the, he, he fought in the Battle of Verdun that took four years. Uh. And uh, basically, over four years, 700,000 people died. 700,000 over four years in a single battle. And the front didn't change. It didn't move back and forth. It just stayed in the same place and people died. So you ask yourself, what for? It was just the narrative of politicians, of military commanders that convinced those young people to die. To just and stand it's there such and a die. Shame, you know, because among yeah. people that died in the First World War was, for example, Carl Schwarzschild, who discovered the solution for a black hole in Einstein's equations. You know, he was 42 uh, years old, the director of Potsdam Observatory. And you, you ask yourself, you know, at that age, he could have done so much more in science. And he just died for nothing. And this is just an, an example. But, you know, every day there are people wasting their resources on things that make no difference, that uh, very often are destructive driven by jealousy or by the sense of superiority relative to other people. And all of this makes no sense whatsoever. You know, like, why would we do that? Uh, I think it basically shows that, you know, we are not a very intelligent species. And one reason I'm seeking intelligence or higher intelligence in outer space is uh, because I have not found it yet here on Earth. <laughs> In, in my opinion, I think our civilization went more toward the materialistic end of, of life, whereas previous civilizations, they were more in touch with nature and being and within, whereas us, it's all who has what, who has the badge, who has that. And I think that's part of probably why we're having this conversation about the spending money and just throwing it away. Yeah, I, I agree with you that connecting to nature makes much more sense because it ma makes you modest, uh, humble, because then you realize, you know, there's things that are much more powerful than you. And, and, you know, and much more powerful than the nice shirt, you know? At sunrise. Yeah. And, um, it, it doesn't matter if it snows or rains or whatever. I mean, tomorrow it, the, we will have five inches of snow. I will jog <laughs> out, outdoors at sunrise for half an hour. And, you know, just appreciating nature makes you a student for life yeah. you don't think too highly of yourself i mean we know that we all die that that is a, a, an incredible force right so you cannot avoid that at least for now i mean in the future we might repair our body but as of now we will die you know and um so that already teaches you modesty you know how can you think highly of yourself if you, if you will not exist you know eventually so so altogether, the message of nature is be modest. And the only way that we become arrogant or, or we waste resources or we go into wars, you know, to just reduce the lifespan of other people or risk our own life, you know, that makes no sense. We live for such a short time. Why shorten it, you know, uh, instead of working together to, to make the world better? And um, that's my, you know, my hope is that if we find evidence for a civilization that was more intelligent in the sense of cooperating, building, you know, a higher level of science and technology and reaching us, you know, instead of us reaching them, perhaps it will inspire us to, to do better. It's just like seeing a smarter kid in a class, you know, you realize, oh, wow, it, 
I can be better. I, I always thought, well, I was really reading a lot into the Milky Way because that's very interesting. And we can't see much through there because of all the dust. But to me, in the Milky Way, there has to be something there. Uh, and talking to you. And what I had thought, let's just say uh, an extraterrestrial life came and we saw it. I think that would bring everyone together because now you see it. It's basically what you're saying. Now we know for sure. And instead of all this war and all that, I just wonder if everybody would come together and really well, try. First, um, I, you know, it's hard to imagine that this would be like you will find the spacecraft with biological creatures in it because the journey is very long. You know, it, uh, even at the speed of light, if you were to design a spacecraft that moves at the speed of light, it takes 50,000 years to traverse the disk of stars in the Milky Way galaxy at the entire diameter of it. Um, and, you know, that's a long time and much longer than a human lifetime. And uh, if you use uh, chemical rockets, the, all the spacecraft that we use so far, uh, that the journey will take half a billion years. So it's very long. And biological creatures are simply not designed for such a journey. I mean, they we were selected to survive for a short time on the surface of a rock uh, like the Earth. Uh, and it makes much more sense to send um, systems that can be hardened to survive the hazardous conditions of space that have the patience to wait and recharge their batteries when they get to the destination. And uh, so these would be systems with artificial intelligence. And uh, since the journey takes a long time, you can't have uh, another species like the human species in mind when you send those probes. So if anything arrives to us, it's not because of us. We did not, we were not that interesting 50,000 years ago. You know, we were indistinguishable from nature. We were living in caves. Yeah. You know, we, I mean, it would, it would have been really difficult to differentiate between humans and other animals at the time. Um, so, Obviously, when the journey started of any probe that arrives to us today, you know, we, that the, the senders did not have us in mind. Okay, that's the way we should think about it. Uh, and then the question is, you know, what can we learn from them? And obviously, uh, you know, if it's a system that is functional with artificial intelligence, we will have to figure out what the intent is, what 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 is this system seeking, and what kind of a technology is it using? And we might need to use our own AI systems to figure out their AI systems. You know, I was asked many times what protocol we should have, because if we have a visitor in our backyard, we should decide what to do. And, and I say, you know, you just can't have a committee that decides about a protocol ahead of time, because it depends on the nature of the visitor. You know, you can't just say, in case the visitor is X, I will do Y, you know, like, we don't know what X is. And uh, so I think if we do find a visitor, first thing to do is not engage, but try and figure out what the visitor is doing. What kind of information is it seeking? So learn about the visitor. I once had a conversation with uh, Henry Kissinger on Zoom. It was uh, a year and a half ago. Um, and I asked him, you know, based on his experience as a negotiator, you know, with China and other nations. Uh, what do you do when uh, you're confronted with a completely foreign alien uh, culture? You know, like, how do you deal with that? And 
And he agreed that you you first have to learn what they are after uh, and and only then start the, the conversation. So um, that that is my advice that we should not engage until we sort of get a better understanding of what these visitors are. Because you, you want, like you said, you won't want to have a committee. You would want to look uh, at it from afar and strategically plan yes. how you would handle it. I mean, I don't think that's like a rocket science to think that, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I was chair of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine years, the longest uh, serving chair. And uh, one thing I realized is, you know, large committees uh, basically make decisions based on the lowest common denominator of the committee members. And they don't necessarily have the vision or uh, the correct perspective about what they're deciding. Now, if you deal with bureaucracy, you know, that may work. You can have big committees. They will decide about rules and regulations. But but if you're talking about the new experience, you know, that that's not uh, for a committee to figure out. It's more for the brightest and the best among our thinkers to look at it and try and fit. So it's just like, you know, in science, very often you're faced with data that you don't understand. And, and so it's not a committee that will figure out what the data means. You know, we didn't need a committee to figure out the law of gravity. It was up to Albert Einstein to come up with a new understanding of it or with uh, Isaac Newton before him or Galileo Galilei before him. And so um, it's not committees. It's actually like a board uh, realizing what the right, <laughs> what the truth is. And, and that may take um, our brightest. I mean, now it could be an, an AI system. I'm not saying it must be a human. Uh, it could be a human, but it could also be our most advanced uh, AI systems as they become even more powerful than humans. Two more questions and then the really good stuff. All these so-called sightings that we're seeing now, the ones that go into the water, you know, 80,000 feet, do you think that's a distraction for what's going on politically? Do you think it is something? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, so I think it's uh, intriguing enough uh, to collect more data on these objects just to figure out whether they are human-made, natural, or artificial from another planet, extraterrestrial. I think... It's worth collecting more data because uh, the director of national intelligence, um, you know, said in in the last report that was delivered to Congress a couple of months ago that about half of the objects are not understood. I mean, half of them are balloons, a small fraction drones, but um, you know, there there are hundreds of um, reports in 2022 from military personnel uh, which do not have an explanation. And then uh, yesterday, I uh, finished a paper with uh, the director of the new office in government, um, uh, looking at uh, anomalous uh, aerial phenomena. Uh, actually, it's a multi-medium phenomena, like both in air and in water, the ocean, and and in space. So, so this office that uh, is abbreviated AARO. Um, is um, assembling data from all uh, government sections and trying to collect new data that will shed light on those unidentified aerial phenomena. And and we wrote the paper together because I'm leading the Galileo project and wow. I'm trying to pursue a scientific program 
where we collect new data using our observatories designed for that purpose. In the past, there was never an astronomical observatory that could monitor the entire sky and look for objects that are moving fast across the sky. Astronomers are interested in very distant sources. So we had to build up a system of sensors that is completely different than past observatories. And we did that. We just need to make more copies of it. So anyway, um, uh, I wrote a paper with um, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick where we talk about sort of general principles that allow us to say something about unidentified objects. And my hope is that the more we look at the sky, the better we, un we will understand uh, in terms of the nature of these objects. So it, there, it makes no sense to be either a skeptic or a believer. All you need to do is collect better data and um, attend to what it tells you. Uh, so, you know, it's just like a kid, a child that uh, has no prejudice about the world and tries to learn from experience. We should be modest, not assume that we know the answer in advance. Why should we? If it doesn't cost so much money, you know, uh, we can just put this money, do the experiment and figure it out. Yeah, like uh, Dr. Nolan, uh, the blood doctor, they went to him, uh, you know, CIA, whoever it was. He couldn't say exactly who it was. They gave him a thousand instances of supposable people that got close to these objects. He narrowed it down to 100. One talked to every each of them and then did blood tests, brain scans, and every one of them had white matter in their brain under the scans. Now, like any good doctor, any good, uh, you know, philosopher, trying to figure things out he wouldn't say yes or say no but what he his conclusion was that every one of those hundred had similar uh white matter in the brain that got either too close to the object or far away and i really liked and i think you'll appreciate that this he wasn't saying that they were trying to hurt anyone he made the he made the observation if you walk behind a fighter jet you're going to get fried so if you do go around one of these objects and it's about to take off, you're going to get cooked. And they all matched. And, you know, he was still, like you said, he was still doing further studies before he would come to a conclusion. Yeah. But the, the difference is, okay, so it could be a human-made object, right, that causes damage uh, biologically to people. I mean, we this doesn't say that it must be extraterrestrial. Uh, I don't want to use humans as detectors. Uh, I well, for a number of reasons, because you know humans have hallucinations, wishful thinking. Great that, point. You know, if there is a car accident, you ask people involved, and each of them gives a different report. Okay, and many people are put in jail uh, for the wrong reasons just because of human testimonies. You know, and we know that humans are not reliable. So. The way that physicists cope with that is you don't take humans as evidence for anything. You know, you don't put humans in a collider and ask them, what do you see? Is this a new particle? That's not the way to do it. You just use the instruments because instruments have no ulterior motives. They have no hallucinations. I mean, you have to understand the instrument, the way it operates, but they basically produce results that can be reproduced under similar circumstances. And... And once you calibrate your instruments, you can rely on them. So that's the way physics is done. And that's the approach that I'm taking. Uh, there is a long history of using human humans as detectors, you know, asking humans, you know, who were abducted or asking humans to experience something or, I mean, including military uh, 
personnel, like pilots and so forth. I mean, I respect them, and I believe that there is there might be something intriguing. But uh, in order to find out, we really need to use instruments. That's the way to convince ourselves that what you know what we are looking at is indeed not human-made or natural. And and um, just stay tuned. You know, we're we're planning to collect the data and figure it out. Great points. And, and tell me about the low project that you did. Congratulations on that. Well, so there is the Galileo project that was um, a result of a, a number of wealthy individuals that uh, were inspired by the vision of my book, Extraterrestrial, and then donated a few million dollars. And as part of that, um, we're also planning an expedition to collect the fragments of the first interstellar meteor near Papua New Guinea. The US government confirmed that it came from uh, outer space beyond the solar system. Whoa in a letter written to, to NASA from the U.S. Space Command, the Department of Defense. And uh, it said that it's interstellar, as we concluded, at the 99.999%. And we were able to localize uh, the site of where the meteor exploded uh, to better than uh, uh, a kilometer or so. And uh, we signed a contract on a boat, and I received the funding at uh, about one and a half million dollars to go ahead with this expedition and examine the area and basically scoop the ocean floor and uh, with uh, a sled and a, a, equipped with magnets and try to find those uh, small spherules that uh, were left behind from the explosion of the meteor. And we want to figure out their composition and. Uh, let's see what what we will find. I mean, it's uh, like a fishing fishing expedition. Uh, we we don't ha- assume anything, but I already promised the curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City that Paula Antonelli that if we find any gadget uh, from an in- extraterrestrial civilization, then I'll bring it for display uh, in her museum because it would represent modernity for us. And, and then I also I don't want to botch the word, but you introduced the concept of habitable approach of early universe. And the way you did it was looking for oxygen. Am I understanding that right? Yeah. Well, so um, the question is, when did life start in the universe? How early? And uh, recently I wrote a a paper um, discussing Titan, uh, which is uh, a moon of Jupiter. And, um, it has a temperature of 94 degrees above absolute zero degrees Kelvin, um, which is about a third of the temperature on Earth because it's 10 times farther from the sun. And um, turns out that it has an atmosphere and has liquid oceans, except they're not water. I mean, instead of the water cycle, you have methane and ethane. and uh, because the atmosphere is rich in nitrogen, just like the Earth. And an interesting question is whether there is life in those oceans that is different than the life we are familiar with. But under the surface, under the frozen surface, there is also liquid water. We know that uh, from uh, data. And uh, therefore, I said, well, the the temperature in the universe was 94 degrees Kelvin above absolute zero uh, when the universe was... Uh, about uh, 200 million years old. And uh, um, at that point, um, you know, there were already stars in the universe. So it's possible that they created, I mean, the second generation of, of, 
stars had planet planets with uh, moons like uh, Titan. And if if there were objects like Titan back then, they didn't need to be close to a star because the cosmic radiation background uh, from the Big Bang had a temperature of 94 degrees back then. And life could have started back then uh, either in the uh, methane oceans or in the liquid water under the surface. So it could be that life started really early in the universe, just hundreds of millions of years after the Big Bang. Um, and that is, you know, of order a percent of the present age of the universe. So um, we don't know when life started, but we can actually look for uh, evidence that maybe life started so early by by finding stars that were born at that time and uh, looking around them and um so anyway uh, it's an interesting um possibility about our cosmic roots uh, you know we know that we exist now but the question is how early did life emerge well you know uh, graham hancock you know he you know graham hancock and randall they're they do all this ancient digging and everything and they had found a mummified body from 150,000 years ago but they had to hide it because just like they did with Tesla, they sealed everything, and finally they're coming out with it. You know, they're blocking it. So when you think for all these years, you think, oh, 150,000 years ago, we weren't here. The guy had a fishing rod, and they have proof, not fact, proof. So when, when you hear something like that and you read something like that, in your mind, how does that set things differently or, or coincide with, with, with some of your writings? This episode is brought to you by Fiji. More than just water. This is not just rock. It's ancient volcanic rock that filters tropical rain, giving it double the electrolytes and its signature soft, smooth taste. It's not just water. It's Fiji water. Well, I'm seeking uh, indisputable evidence uh, for another civilization. And um, it's just like doing archaeology. As you point out, I mean, it's except it's interstellar archaeology and the implications would be huge for humanity because it would change the way we think about ourselves, our place in the universe, our aspirations for space. I don't think there is any bigger scientific question uh, in terms of its implications for humanity than this one. And um, that's why I'm dedicated to it. And uh, what is surprising to me is that it's not part of the mainstream of science. Even though the public cares a lot about it, the government cares about it because they see those unidentified objects. So it's a matter of good citizenship to, for scientists to care about it. I, I think it's common sense to consider it as a viable possibility. And it's surprising to me that um, not everyone is joining me on this effort. But, um, you know, I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter. <laughs> I don't have any um, account on social media. I, I just follow my common sense and uh, try to do the right thing. And the Galileo Project has a hundred members and for there are a thousand of number of people that, that wanted to join it. So clearly this task makes a lot of sense to many people. Um, and I think once we find the evidence, you know, it could become a very uh, active field of research. So if we get enough funding to do our uh, study and, and, and get conclusive results, uh, I think it will change everything. And, and in one of your studies, you were studying and 
it, it's always assumed that an Earth-like planet, planet has to have a star and a sun. And what you had found was a cigar-like object, right? But when it would move, it would move with it. I'm probably saying that wrong because, you know, but could you elaborate on that? I understood it when I read it, but it, it was amazing. So in my book, Extraterrestrial, I discuss it. This was the first reported object from outside the solar system called Oumuamua, roughly that. the size of a football field. And we saw it because of the reflection of sunlight. And as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that meant that it had a very e extreme shape, most likely flat based on the reflection of sunlight and very different from space rocks that we see. We, we never see such a thing flat and uh, 10 times longer than it is wide when projected on the sky. And then it was pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force um, beyond the gravity that was operating on it. And it didn't show any evaporation. There was no cometary tail around it. So the question is, what is pushing it if it's not the rocket effect? And I suggested it's just a reflection of sunlight. And for that, the object had to be very thin. Um, and um, I said, well, nature doesn't make flat, thin objects with a, a weird shape, and maybe it's artificial in origin. And my colleagues pushed back. And then uh, three years later, there was another object that was discovered. It was given the name 2020 SO by the same telescope uh, in Hawaii. And uh, within a few weeks, it was discovered that this second object is actually a rocket booster that was launched by NASA in 1966. And we know that it was made of stainless steel and had very thin walls. That's why it was pushed away from the sun by reflecting sunlight and had no cometary evaporation. These are the same properties as Oumuamua had, the object from 2017 that was interstellar. So we know that 2020 SO was artificial because we made it. The question is, who made Oumuamua? That's the big question, right? Now, my favorite thing, because it always changes. I, I used to watch Stephen Dawkins as a kid all through growing up. Uh, you know, first a black hole, it would suck you up and eat you. And then they weren't sure what a black hole was. And last that I had read, there was the possibility that a black hole may not be so bad that it, it may suck you in not me or you but it may suck in things and shoot to a whole nother universe and another universe and another universe and when i read that and read that that made more sense to me what robert beta was saying that it that space never begins and never ends that black hole sucks you in and out in your studies and your philosophy where are you at with black holes yeah, so, well, I actually established uh, the first uh, center worldwide that focuses on the study of black holes. It's called the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard University. We inaugurated it in 2016 uh, in the company of Stephen Hawking, who came especially, he visited my home. Um, Great guy. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, by now, we have images of black holes, and uh, they were obtained in the conference room of the Black Hole Initiative. Uh, at Harvard. And so I'm very proud of that. Uh, as to what happens inside a black hole, that's still an open question. I mean, a black hole is a region of space and time, which is represents the ultimate prison. You can check in, but you can never check out. <laughs> um, and um, <clears throat> uh, the question is, 
what happens to you inside and uh, as you fall in towards the center there is a, a point which is called the singularity where the equations that Einstein wrote for describing gravity break down. We know why they break down because you need quantum mechanics on very small scales near the singularity and Einstein's theory does not have quantum mechanics so it cannot forecast what happens there. So some people made a conjecture. They said, well, maybe it's a portal that you go through to another universe. I think of it differently. Uh, you know, I had the, once I had a flood in my basement and I uh, invited the plumber to come and help me. And we realized that the sewer was clogged by uh, tree roots. Uh, so we cleared it up. And only then I started thinking while helping the plumber at the basement, I started thinking, well, what happens to matter that falls into a black hole? Now, in the case of the water, the sewer system, I never thought about the fact that the, the water flows out of my home into some uh, reservoir of the town, you know, and um, <clears throat> and if it's clogged, of course, the sewer, then the water keeps collecting in my basement. So it's possible that the black hole, you know, is just what it is, you know, it's clogged and all the matter that falls into it collects near the center and then um, it collects at the maximum density that you can imagine, which is called the Planck density. And maybe there is an object that they're at the Planck density near the centers of black holes. And uh, that is my favorite uh, notion. It's, um, uh, you know, it doesn't require you to go into another universe or something hypothetical. You know, it basically says uh, all the material falling into a black hole collects in an object and um, you keep collecting it there, you know, as the black hole grows uh, and it sits there just like a star, but at a very high density. That would be my guess if I had to guess as to what happens near near the center of a black hole. But of course, when you get there, you know, you cannot survive as a human being, your body gets uh, ripped apart. And I once, um, <clears throat> I was asked to give a lecture about black holes at this, uh, at, at the school, uh, where, um, the elementary school where my daughter went and uh, a kid was asking me, a boy said, what will happen to my body when I fall into a black hole? And I started describing that it will, you know, the force or the, the pull on his uh, toes will be very different than uh, on his head and eventually the body would be ripped apart and as you get closer to the center and the teacher stopped me and said please stop because you, uh, the kids will have nightmares if you continue <laughs> uh, but uh, it's actually you know it happens to stars when stars fall into a black hole they get ripped apart didn't they, didn't, didn't they just have um, a report I'm not sure where I saw it that the black hole spit something back out though did you so hear that? before the matter gets into, so there is a region around the black hole, which is called the horizon. That's sort of the wall of the prison. Okay. So once you enter in it, you can't escape. But when matter falls into a black hole, you should think of it just like water running down uh, the tub, you know, uh, to, to the sink. And um, in these processes, uh, the material spirals into a black hole, it heats up because there is viscosity and the friction heats it up and it can radiate. Uh, and if it heats up too much, 
some of the matter is ejected in an outflow. You you see it in in the form of jets, very powerful, uh, you know, uh, focused, collimated flows of material up to the speed of light. And we see that in about 10%, about a tenth of all the black hole systems show very powerful jets coming out. In fact, the most impressive uh, uh, realization of that is um, when a massive star, let's say a star that weighs tens of times the mass of the sun, when it consumes its nuclear fuel after a few million years, you know, it collapses, the core collapses, and very often it makes a black hole. But in the process of making it, the core of the star is swirling around the black hole and some of the material gets expelled in jets in those jets that i was talking about and those jets can drill a hole in the envelope of the star so if you happen to be aligned with those jets what would you see you could see a flash of very very energetic radiation in your direction and in fact, we see those. They are called gamma ray bursts. Gamma. And actually, the U.S. government was the first to discover them because the U.S. government in the late 1960s wanted to monitor whether the Russians are exploding nuclear weapons above the atmosphere. So they built the Vela uh, satellites to monitor for any gamma rays or energetic radiation coming off and nuclear explosions above the atmosphere. And the when they deployed those satellites, they saw a flash of gamma rays every day or every couple of days. And I'm sure that in the first week, there was a lot of alarm in Washington, D.C., but then they realized, oh, it's not the, it cannot be the Russians. It must be coming from the universe. And then a team in Los Alamos, about five years later, published a paper saying there are these gamma ray bursts coming from the universe. We don't know where they are and what makes them. By now we understand. So here is an example of a situation where the US government sees something, doesn't fully understand it, reports about it, and it benefits the product of science. Why is the US government first to see it? Because they have much better funding than scientists and they build instruments for national security purposes that are much more capable than the scientific instruments that astronomers use. And every now and then they stumble across something exciting. So I'm saying, you know, the US satellite, I mean, the satellites used to monitor the Earth or sensors on the ground looking for ballistic missiles, you know, all these things are uh, examples of sensors that astronomers do not have access to, but the government has much more funding and so if they report about unidentified objects that look weird, you know, we should pay attention because there is at least one example in the history of astronomy, gamma ray bursts, where the US government was first to dis discover a new phenomenon. So it's possible <clears throat> that the US government is the first to, to notice objects around the Earth that astronomers missed because they don't have the same sensors. Now, if the government came out and said, we know that there's a gamma ray burst and it's not China and Russia, what would that mean? No, so gamma, we see gamma ray, a gamma ray burst from the universe every day, okay? And basically what you are seeing is a, a massive star collapsing to a black hole that makes those jets that 
pen and drill a hole through the envelope of the star and you see those jets when they're aligned with your uh, line of sight. So when you look at it, down the jet, you see them as bright flashes of gamma rays. And so if so nowadays, astronomers are looking for them. And if the US government sees one of them, they know what, you know, that they come from the universe. So that's not an alarm at all. Um, so I think the US government benefits from progress in science, you know, because the more we understand about physics, about the universe, um, the more we can employ that knowledge, uh, you know, and, and benefit the national security. And um, so it goes both ways, but I'm saying on rare occasions, the US government discovers things that scientists were not aware of. And an example is the discovery of gamma ray bursts in the late 1960s. Another example may be these unidentified aerial phenomena. We still don't know what they are. And even if one of them is represents an object that is extraterrestrial from a technological civilization other than ours, while all the others are ch made in China, you know, I don't care yeah. if there are balloons, drones made in China, but even if there is one which is extraterrestrial in origin, that would revolutionize our future, the future of humanity. That's what I meant. If they if they have one, two, ten, if they gave it to guys like you, just imagine the research that could progress. You know that, that that's the hope. Agree. Yeah, I completely agree that if there is something beyond this earth, you know, it doesn't adhere to national borders. It's not a matter of national security. Uh, it's it's supposed to represent knowledge that should be shared with all humans okay so it makes little sense i mean i know that in the case of this uh, chinese balloon that was shut down you know it was huge it was 60 meters in size you know the size of three buses uh, and, and they sure did give it plenty of time to hang out up there it was a huge thing and then it came to the attention it was brought to the attention of uh, President Biden, and he made a decision to shoot it down, and they shut it down, and now they're reconstructing it just to understand what the Chinese was trying to get at, you know, in terms of espionage. But if you see an object that was not made by humans, it's not supposed to be the privilege of the President of the United States to know it when others don't, okay? It makes little sense because uh, it's from outside of this earth, just like anything scientific about the universe. You know, when we realized a hundred years ago, there was a PhD thesis by Cecilia Payne-Kopashkin that at Harvard, the first PhD in astronomy. And she argued that the sun is made of hydrogen based on her study. And now we know that most of the ordinary matter in the universe is hydrogen, you know, so that kind of knowledge should not have been the privilege of the president of the United States because, you know, if the, if most of the ordinary matter in the universe is hydrogen, all humans should be aware of that. It has nothing to do with the United States, you know. And the same is true about any device that we identify from outside of this earth. You know, it should be knowledge that is scientific knowledge that is open, shared with everyone because the consequences are global. Uh, it's not specific to the United States. So... What I'm saying is, <clears throat> together with the US government, you know, I don't care personally as a scientist, I don't care about human made objects, you know, I would be happy to deliver any data we get from the Galileo project 
to Washington DC if it has to do with humans, you know, uh, I don't care about it. But if it's extraterrestrial, then um, the government shouldn't care about it. So what we are doing as scientists is complementary and we can work together. I can help the, the government figure out the nature of things that may not be terrestrial and deliver to them whatever we find to be terrestrial. I don't know if you, you know Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar, yes, I yeah. I know. Yeah. Let, you know, the guy, I mean, to, to not change your story for 50 years, I mean, that's pretty good. Assuming uh, he's the one who he was at Area 40. They said he was never there. He left one of Barbara Waters. Uh, they had the one uh, material he said was there, and now it's on the chart. And then he, he went on Joe Rogan, a couple other things, uh, things like that. Now, I always look at it like this. A, a guy who can keep the same story that long is pretty good. And if he was working on an extraterrestrial craft, whatever it may be, maybe it's just me looking at it from a guy who's looking through a MacBook. But I look and I say, 15 years ago, we didn't have an iPhone. We didn't have anything. How do you make an advancement that fast? You know, from 1940 to, to 1990, nothing really crazy changed. Then all of a sudden, 10 years, you have a cell phone that can go anywhere. You have a MacBook. You have all this, that. And it just makes me wonder if there is something there and they're starting to reverse engineer it and use it, some with the AI, some with the rockets, or am I just in wishful thinking land? I think you're um, in wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank and you for I'll the honesty. You Thank you for I'll the honesty. I'll tell you why. Because... Um, just imagine instead of Bob Lazar, imagine you meet a person on the street that says that he is Napoleon. Yeah. And he keeps saying that for decades. And you say, wow, that's amazing. If he insists that he's Napoleon, you know, and he's fully consistent about the fact that he's Napoleon, maybe it's Napoleon. I say, no way. He never showed you the ID that will demonstrate that he's Napoleon. And by the way, Napoleon is dead. So it's not even possible. I got sucked into what you know, I wanted to my believe. My point is uh, simple. There are lots of people that can say a lot of things. And it's not just Bob Lazar. It's other people. They can say whatever they want. You know, it's a free country. The only question is, should we pay attention to what they're saying? Now, in politics, you have a lot of people who say things that are not substantiated. And many people believe them. And they are fully they could be fully consistent, you know, throughout decades they can say the same unsubstantiated thing. Does that make them credible? No. So when someone says, I was actually a scientist and I saw this and that, it doesn't make it more credible in my view, unless that person shows me evidence. Now, what is evidence? Evidence is documentation. Uh, show me documents, show me pictures show me material evidence that what you're talking about is correct you can say whatever you want the fact that you're consistent over decades just shows that you're consistent over decades okay there are lots of people that can be consistent over decades some of them are in mental you know hospitals very sure so how do we tell the difference the only way to tell the difference is by looking at the evidence and you know, evidence in science is reproducible. You're supposed to be able to reproduce it yourself. 
That's the beauty of science, that someone makes a claim, you don't need to believe that claim. If you reproduce the same circumstances, you will see it again. Now, you may say, oh, maybe there was a miracle, uh, a one-time thing. Well, if it's a miracle, science cannot deal with it. Uh, you know, you can believe in it, but the point is you will never be able to demonstrate that it actually happened. Now, when Bob Lazar says there is this program, okay, well, <clears throat> show me the evidence. And if there was a program, there should be documents. There should be a place where you can find evidence for it. Without that evidence, it's nothing, you know, and we can waste our time just looking around in circles. Um, the point is, if we do see evidence, I don't need Bob Lazar. You know, it's not about him as an individual. It's no. about the evidence. And so talking about him as the individual makes no sense. Very good point. And I, I don't want to abuse your time because I definitely want you to come on again because I have a list. After all your studies, what do you think happens when we die? You know, I, I, I read or read, you know, DMT is in the brain and then it's no longer active. Then they found the alternative uh, DMT. And this kind of goes with, with everything. Where does all that energy go? Well, I think uh, our body... The, the tier, I mean, degrades, and eventually it's just like unplugging a computer from the power outlet, you know. So suddenly the computer doesn't function anymore once you unplug it. And the human body is uh, very similar, you know, the, our thoughts disappear, stop at some point in time, and we call that death. And um, trying to give it, a, a, you know, meaning to me, as of now, you know, I, I just don't see the difference between the human mind and a very advanced sentient AI system, a computer system. And just imagine an AI, a sentient AI system. You know, I think there would, there should be uh, legal restrictions on unplugging it from the wall, just like the, there are legal restrictions on uh, pulling the trigger, uh, you know, on a gun that is pointed at a person yeah. and the, uh, I don't see any difference. I don't think that we are anything beyond the material world. Uh, and of course, humans are much more sophisticated, complex systems uh, than other things that we usually encounter. And it's just a matter of complexity and functionality that makes us different. But fundamentally, we are material things because the, the way to realize that is, you know, if if you if you go to war and someone shoots a bullet at you, your body just dies and you're not there anymore, you know? So why would it be that the trigger on whether you are, you're, you're around or not is just a physical object like a bullet penetrating your body and changing it, basically ripping apart all the, you know, physical things in it. That is the way to kill people. You know, it's really simple. So if the way to kill people is so simple just by um, destroying their biological infrastructure, I say that people are not more than the biological infrastructure. Last thing, any chance you think this is a simulation? No, I, I, I'm, um, I believe that... <laughs> We should take responsibility for the reality that we share. You know, if you have a deficit in your bank account, you should pay it off rather than say, oh, it's a simulation. You know, to me, the belief in a sim simulated world is not very different than 
being high on recreational drugs, you know, or, or um, putting these goggles of the metaverse on your head. Um, it's an imagine, imagine reality. And um, so far, I haven't seen any evidence for it. And, you know, there is a reality that we all share, and we better take responsibility for it. And we better adapt to it and take it seriously. Because otherwise, you know, maybe the explanation to Fermi's paradox, where is everybody, is that those advanced civilizations either put goggles on their head in, and live in the metaverse or take some recreational drugs or believe in the simulation. And they just don't engage and they just basically degenerate into this non-interacting uh, form where, you know, they just think about things and not do anything. And I think that's really bad. Uh, we should engage with reality. We should venture into space. We should take responsibility for our existence in the reality that we all share rather than say, oh, it's, you know, it's a simulation. It's a, vid it's a video game, right? And there are so yeah. many other things out there. And, you know, the thing about the multiverse is if uh, a kid gets a bad grade here, a kid can say, well, there is a version of me somewhere else <laughs> in the multiverse that gets an A, and therefore I shouldn't be so depressed. Well, no, that's not the way I uh, educated my daughters, you know. You should take responsibility for the reality that we all share. And, <clears throat> you know, th there is this tendency also among uh, mainstream physicists now to say the multiverse exists and yeah. all possibilities are realized somewhere, and therefore what we see here is one representation. That's laziness, intellectual laziness, because anything that you see here, you can explain this way. You can say, oh, it just happens to be here. I don't need to explain it because something else exists elsewhere. That's not, you know, really productive. Um, it's much better to try and figure out things in the reality that we all share, not imagine things, because that would allow us to adapt to this reality, you know. And adapting means that we will survive. And uh, survive means that we should go into interstellar space. And so here we come back to the, to the beginning. that motivates me, you know. And that was to survive, we need to go to space uh, or learn the lessons from those other civilizations that did it already. That was beautifully said because you, you see on TV with these video games, oh, it's a simulation and there's somebody above that's hitting the buttons. If we get lazy, like you said, then we no longer progress. But if we live in the reality we're in, we can build for the future. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. And, and, Excellent. and the, when Darwin says the fittest survives, in my mind, the fittest is the one that is adapting to the reality around it. Because if you imagine things and you never adapt to the reality because you say, wait, well, maybe it's a simulation, maybe there are many other realities, if you don't adapt to it, it will come to haunt you. You know, the earth will eventually be burned by the sun and you will die. And even though you had a happy life where you believe that you are in some simulated reality, the, the truth is that you would not survive for very long if you don't adapt. And what would you say to young people that want to get into your profession? What could you say to them? I know a lot, a lot, a lot. Oh, I say, first of all, science can be exciting. It's not about, uh, you know, senior people uh, trying to get accolades and, you know, uh, being centered on their egos and trying to get awards, honors of people who respect them. Science is about figuring out nature, you know, trying to learn about our environment, uh, about the reality that we all share. Okay. 
So that's exciting because uh, what we know is an island in an ocean of ignorance. We don't know much. And it's just like kids, you know, learning about the world. And uh, the learning experience is what you call science. We make mistakes, but we can learn. And um, you can address exciting questions. And as long as you maintain your childhood curiosity. So my message to young people is stay young in, in spirit. Uh, never become the adult in the room. Never pretend that you know more than you actually know. That is great. And that's why I enjoy working with young people because they don't have a prejudice. They're not attached to themselves so much as, as the older people. And um, the future beyond belongs to, to to the young generation of today. Just don't get older. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Attitude. Stay always young and curious. Rob, you have anything uh, real quick? This is my engineer. He's been waiting for you. Yeah, just only I got one quick question. So is there a possibility, I guess there's always a possibility, but that there's a what we call a life form from another planet, solar system, wherever, that is on our earthly earth observing us? It's possible. Uh, it's also possible that we were planted on Earth, right? Uh, we believe that we evolved from uh, other animals, you know, <laughs> like uh, we came from the apes um, at some point. And who knows, you know, there may have been. So the question is, was there an intelligent species on Earth billions of years ago? And we, I don't I, I just think we don't know because the geology of earth would have mixed any relics that used to be on earth let's say billions of years ago perhaps martians predated us i'm saying we should be open-minded and search you know we can look at on mars for any evidence of life that predated us um we can look on earth you know not just for previous generations of humans thousands of years ago but maybe Years ago. I think we were planted, Doctor. I think we were planted. You got to give me another hour and a half someday. I think we were planted here. I'd love to talk to you about that and all the other stuff. But I, don't be late for your meeting. I respect you so much. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It was fun.